Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. As you listeners know, we like to cover all aspects of the tennis world, juniors, pros, the coaching, the media, all of the above. It fascinates us because the tennis world really is a -a one-of-a-kind sort of place. And today's guest has really exceeded in all areas of the tennis world as a player in the juniors, as a player in the pros. He's gone on to be a successful professional coach. Of course, he's one of my favorite tennis analysts in the game. Of course, I'm talking about former ATP world number 14, John Michael Gamble, who joins the show today for what I can only describe as a really, really enjoyable conversation, touching on his pro career, what it's like to have that degree of success as a junior, the pressure you feel, whether you want to go to college as some of your other peers have done, or maybe you just go straight to the pros because you believe in yourself, you believe you are ready. Of course, John Michael Gamble faced that sort of decision. He also was there for, I think, one of the turning points in tennis, the, the way the game has changed these past 15, 20 years, the speeds of the court the technology available, the way athletes train. Of course, John Michael Gamble was on the forefront, always so fit throughout his career, but he talks about the development in the games over the past 20 years. He talks about the way things have changed, the physicality required of these athletes now, the way the game has gotten better, and so much more. Of course, I ask him for some specifics as well. I run through some of the young guys. We recorded this right around the ATP Finals time, so uh, if you hear a little bit of talk about that, I do apologize. But, uh, you know, overall, uh, you know, I wanted to hear what are the things he thinks the young guys do well, what they need to improve on to get to the next level. It's, uh, again, a really enjoyable conversation, so much detail, one of my favorite guests uh, we have had on this show, and I don't say that lightly. Uh, of course, before we get to that interview, just quickly want to remind all of you listeners, the, re- the, re- the reasons, leave that in, Westoff, we are able to have this sort of podcast, get to have these sorts of exciting conversations is because of the support we get from you listeners from our Patreon family and of course from our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar. It's a lifestyle here, folks. You want to look good, you want to feel good so that when you go on court, you play good. You know who always looked good and, you know, actually he talks about it in the podcast. Sometimes he didn't feel his best, but certainly he looked his best and often when he was feeling his best, he played his best. That's John Michael Gamble. He lived the lifestyle you can too with our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar. You go to MidwestSports.com, you'll find everything you need from a tennis equipment standpoint. You go to Aerobar.com. You'll have a shot at the only tennis-specific energy bars in the business. Use the promo code CR15 when you go to Midwest Sports. Use the promo code CRACKED30 at Aerobar to save a little bit of money on your orders. And, of course, let them know that we sent you there. Uh, Remember, look good, feel good, play good. Midwest Sports, Aerobar, Cracked Rackets. All right, with that in mind, let's get to our conversation with the one and only John Michael Gamble. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us on the podcast today, he was a top 25 ATP professional in both singles and doubles. He's got three singles titles, eight, five doubles titles in his career. Of course, a two-time Kalamazoo finalist as well. He didn't think I was going to ask him about that, but of course I will. You know his voice and his face from Tennis Channel. Jean-Michael Gamble, welcome to the show. It's great to see you. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Oh, of course, it is my pleasure. I've grown so accustomed to seeing that voice or hearing your voice, I suppose. So to get to see your smiling <laughs> face attached to it as well, that's great for me. And, you know, I know you have been busy. Obviously, the French Open is really the Tennis Channel Super Bowl. Uh, you are in Hawaii relaxing now. How are you feeling after uh, this 10 weeks of action? Oh, it's been great. And I mean, I was super happy to do a lot of that tournament. And uh, I think that they did a great job there at the French. It was at least some people in the crowd. <laughs> which was nice to see. And uh, I enjoyed watching the tennis and obviously Rafa once again, just proving that he's the master of that tournament and of clay. And uh, it was, <laughs> it was awesome. I didn't think he'd be able to come out of nowhere, you know, not playing that much tennis and play that well yet again at the French, but he proved uh, me wrong there on that one. So awesome stuff from him. And uh, it was, it was fun. It's been, been a good year actually, as far as being lucky to, to actually do a lot of work with tennis channel, um, keeping us all going as much as possible. And uh, that's been a lot, a lot of fun. And I think that they've gotten a lot of good reps in this year. It's been, been some good tennis. You know, I think that we've made the best of our sport. No, I, I've really appreciated your commentary, sort of reflecting on what it's like for a player to have to try and play through those circumstances. You try and explain that to our audience. And, you know, again, you had a successful pro career. If you're inside the top 25 in both singles and doubles, you're probably doing something right. But, you know, what <laughs> do you think it's been like for these players to have to navigate not only coronavirus protocols, but differing coronavirus protocols at all of these different events? They're still traveling from city to city. Uh, you know, what has it been like to reflect on, see the stresses they're going through and, you know, what would your reflections as a player, how do you think you would have handled it? Well, I think it'd be tough. I think, well, first of all, it depends on where you are in your career. If you're, if you're a young player, it's, you're so hungry to go out and play these tournaments, play tennis, you know, get on the road. Oh, wow. I'm in the top hundred. I need to play, play, play. But obviously with the coronavirus and, uh, you know, everything being shut down for the world, not just our sport, uh, you know, you got to look past, tennis when you when you think, talk about those things I think it's important but uh, if you're a young player it's tough uh, you have to look at it for them positive I've been working with a young player Tristan Boyer he's uh, one of the Stanford top recruits and playing a bunch of tournaments he's he's traveling around playing some futures events right now we did a lot of good work a lot of work on physical kind of things uh, technique fundamentals you could you can kind of fine-tune your game a bit you know work on what's what's not working in tournaments where can I improve and really get to work on those things. So you, cause you had so much time off. If you, if you were lucky enough to have a private court, which we, we had, um, if you're a player in kind of the middle of your career, uh, it, it, it was almost like maybe a little bit of a blessing for, for a time to actually have some time away from the sport. But I think for a lot of, a lot of people, it's like, wow, I can breathe. I can live sort of a normal life for a little while. And, uh, though as it stretched on, I think players, you know, athletes were like, <laughs> okay, had enough, let's, let's get back to it. Um, one of the toughest things in, in, in tennis is the schedule, how long it is. And, and one of the things that, that I personally struggled with uh, was the fact that it goes throughout the year. By the end of the fall season, uh, we're not seeing it this year because people will want to play so badly, but at the end of the fall season, a lot of players, including myself, would kind of struggle with by the time Paris Masters Series, for example, I was often kind of burnt on, on playing events. And so, you know, the off season is not really long enough to do that training. And so I think that the, you look, I try to look at things in the, on the positive. I would have said probably to myself, let's get in the gym. Let's get a little bit faster. Let's get over maybe some injuries. I had niggled injuries throughout my career. And, you know, when you come back, come back ready to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, to your point there, um, and we're doing this on video. So anyone who's listening to this in podcast form, go check out our YouTube channel. You can see what I am looking at right now. And the reason I bring that up is, you know, I had a roommate in college who said, Alex, it's all about the shoulders. The traps are what they see. And, you know, I can see that's the Jean Michael Gamble lifestyle as well. You're, uh, you've definitely got the twin towers poking out. But the reason I bring that up, uh, that was a poor segue. So as to ask, you know, a six month training block is not something professional tennis players are accustomed to having. You're traveling week in, week right. out, day in, day out to all of these different events. I know it depends on the career, but to not, you know, you can't paint a brush for all of these players, but is that six months off? Is that, you know, a blessing in disguise for a lot of these players? Because I can't imagine many of them have had six months off, not due to an injury since maybe they were 12, 13 years old. Right. It's exactly. So it's, it's hopefully, you know, I've had injuries, never, I had injuries that sort of ended my career. Um, six months was, is obviously way too long um, to, for an injury. No one hopes for that. But having six months where you're kind of forced into solitude, 
uh, I think reflecting, uh, you know, it, the, the, the trouble is that so many things were closed. So some players had advantages. If you had, had the gym access, if you had private courts, again, if you had the, the way to still play tennis and, you know, at least get on the court or, or do the fitness. I mean, there's a lot you can do in a, in a room. If you have space, just, just body weight stuff, uh, you know, uh, but it's, it's tough. So some had, had an advantage. Some, I think improved some, some players maybe didn't have it, but I know everybody kind of got away from, from the sport a little bit enough that they would realize how much they love playing probably. Um, and, and if you get away from the sport and you're not missing it, then there's a problem there. That's something that you need to probably kind of check in with as well. So, um, it definitely gives you a look at um, all those things. And uh, six months, you can get a lot of done, work done in six months if you, if you look at it on the positive and you had the space and the tools to, to make improvements. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I look at the guys at Tennis Channel alone. I see Weissman or Prakash or yourself. And word on the street is you're the guy at TC to come to for creatine advice. Is that true or false? <laughs> I, I mean, uh, Prakash is also a guy to, to talk to and yeah, Weissman, he works out every single day. He, we all, we all kind of look at, look at the fitness a little bit differently. We all are very, those three of us are very fitness minded and, and also Ari Wolf, my buddy who I, I do a lot of broadcasting with guys, fit guy. Um, I'm a CrossFitter, but I like the longer workouts. Um, so I, I love getting to a CrossFit box. My friend, uh, uh, Alika just opened up one on the Island here, which is awesome. The view is just crazy from from the gym. I mean, you could not ask for a better place to get into a gym and work out. It's just amazing. Um, Prakash is a little bit more of a lifter. He takes, you know, he takes his food very seriously. He's going up and down. He's bulking and shredding and, and, and it's really fun to watch what he does. I love it. It's, it's not really my cup of tea as far as I just like to go and just beat myself up and then get out of there um, and not, not worry as much about what necessarily I'm eating. I try to eat healthy as much as I can, but you'll see me at McDonald's once in a while too. So it's, you know, and then you got Weissman who's, you know, he's does a lot of long, a lot of running. He does a lot of uh, that kind of fitness where he mixes in body weight stuff. He's an amazing chef. I am a major, I'm an envy of, of the stuff that he cooks up just on the daily. Um, so he's a very healthy eater too. And, uh, and thoughtful about what he puts in his body. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's great because tennis channel is we're a fitness network. It's tennis. Yeah. You know, so we have a lot of a lot of fit people there, and it's and I think it's a, it's a good way to look at things. Yeah, no, they leave the unshaven, scraggly guys to the podcast network, and that's where <laughs> I come in. Um, but no, I've got that going. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, yeah, hopefully my mother doesn't watch this video. But, uh, you know, uh, a word on the street is you're more of the sort of guy who's, you know, you're 50 floors up in the hotel, and you're on the balcony doing stand up push ups. <laughs> is that true? that so that is that is the apartment that, that i live in, in in la it's pretty high up and literally i mean there's just not much option in la right now in, in hawaii hawaii it's a little different things are open here you get some space and it's a little bit different but uh in in california stuff's closed uh, my favorite crossfit gym i work at a depot crossfit downtown and they have um their stuff is in is is right now outside it's it's sort of limited they're doing it in the parking lot haven't really gotten my mind around that yet but uh you know i've bought some stuff for the place and got an assault bike and yeah, it's way up there, but believe it or not, there's actually enough space that it's not so scary. A lot of people are like, you're crazy working out on that deck up there, but it's like, well, I don't know what my options are. And, and, yeah. and, and I don't mind it so much. I don't love hikes to be honest. Yeah. But I no, just do it. Every so often there's nothing wrong. Like, you know what? I am a little bit crazy. Like, yeah, it's true. You caught me on this one. This is yeah. it. And again, fitness is a good thing Fair. to be crazy about, but you know, we're talking here about the nutrition, about the fitness. And the reason I bring that up is because again, the six and a half month training block, the ability to balance making the most, you know, maximizing this time period versus still staying fresh should the tour resume. And obviously both tours ended up doing so. I think we see some of those decisions paying dividends now, right? Like you look at someone like Andre Rublev, guys fit as a fiddle. He could play week in, week out, day in, day out. It doesn't matter. Similarly, you saw a Jennifer Brady come in and, you know, she was so good during world team tennis, same deal, just faster than she's faster than she's ever been. Exactly. So I guess, how do you balance, how would you have balanced those two things? And do you think most of the players did a good job balancing? I feel like you just have to be so fit to compete in modern tennis. Yeah, you either have to be extremely fit, extremely fast, or have a major weapon that's going to even out that playing field a little bit. So if you're not as fast as some of the other guys, look at a Rayonet. She's not as fast as other guys, but he doesn't change direction as well as them. But he's got one of the biggest and best serves of all time and huge ground strokes and will compete against anybody out there. So, you know, you can look at what, what do I have? How can I maximize those things? 
can I get a little bit faster? Everybody's got to try to get a little bit faster, right? Because the Rublevs of the world, they're still improving. You know, he's improved his fitness, his ability. You know, he's a pretty thin guy, but he's a, his ability to play that way over the course of a long match, five sets if he needs it, uh, has improved. Uh, he's improved his temperament, you know, those kinds of things. So there's, there's always things I think that you can work on. The fitness is, has, has definitely taken a turn for the higher end in tennis because players just can play longer. They, you know, you have these strings that keep the ball in the court longer. You can hit more spin. You got guys sliding on hard courts now routinely. That's that to me just blows my mind. I could barely slide in the clay. So, you know, I, I watch these guys. It's like, a, it's really actually fun for me to watch them. It's like, God, that's, that's awesome. The guy can move like that. I would never have thought even to do that. I took the little Jimmy Connors steps that, that Jimmy used the way he played and infused that into the way that I played and moved. And it, it just doesn't work if you want to slide, you know, Jimmy could slide. I, I never learned that part. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I, it, this was once and you know, I'm not the athlete you are, but I was playing clay court tennis. It was like the, it was welcome week, my sophomore year of college. And obviously welcome week, you can imagine it was not necessarily the soberest of Alex's, but for the first time ever, I <laughs> slid on a clay court and I was like, that was not right. Like I felt it in my hip. I was like, this is why I don't slide. Like, you know, my people, the Jewish people are not meant to be sliders. And so we just, you know, we stay away from that. But yeah, I mean, the fitness levels you see from these players nowadays are just incredible. And this gets me to one of my pet theories I've talked about before on this podcast, but would love to hear your position on this. You see, particularly in the men's game, you know, the emergence of the Zverevs, the Medvedevs, the Hercatches of the world. Obviously the most extreme example would be a Riley Opelka, but a Hatchinov or even a Tsitsipas who's six foot four. It just feels like to succeed at the top of the game, as you mentioned, you need to have either speed, you know, incredible speed or that big weapon you can disrupt things with. It just feels like it's getting to a point where if you're not six four, six five, six six, I don't know how you're going to be able to compete at the top of the men's game. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Do you think that's the direction men's tennis is heading? Well, I don't not exactly. I mean, not exactly, because you, you have maybe you, you have the three maybe best players of all time, probably, you know, I think that's not even sure. discuss, all of, at about the same height, really. They're all about six foot, six one, right? Fed, mm-hmm. Novak, Rafa, they're all about that similar. They're pretty close in height. I, I think it helps to be six foot. It helps to be able to torque <laughs> your serve a little bit to be over, to be over six foot. All, all those guys you mentioned are sort of built the same, whether they're a little bit taller or shorter than the, than, than the next. They're all lean and muscular guys mm-hmm. so that's like that's for me that's that's why i think where the sport has gone before you could say oh that's a tennis player <laughs> yeah. usually kind of big legs tiny little tiny little worthless arms and then and then just fit looking guy and now you have you know athletes you have an athletic frame on these players and that's that's really the big change that i've seen over from you know 60s 70s 80 you know to, to today Um, one of the things for me is I wanted to be known as an athlete more than a tennis player. Uh, I I did the fitness because I liked it. I did the fitness because I wanted to look like an, and feel like an athlete. It was important to me mentally to feel that way, um, in life. I didn't want to person necessarily to be able to pick me out and say, Oh, that's a tennis player. (laughs) So, uh, you know, that's kind of why I've evolved now. I obviously I do CrossFit and stuff. I don't really care about being super fast anymore sure uh, i'd rather be i'd rather be able to just do things daily easily if that makes sense you know so um i think that you know i'm too big now to have to play full-time tennis uh but you know 20 pounds less i'd be pretty happy playing tennis you know so it's 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 that's what we're seeing on these players today is it's they're all athletes even even rublev the guy's strong he's a muscular mm-hmm. guy he's never going to be a big guy he's pretty small bone but he gets every little ounce out of his body that he possibly could. Yeah, he is such a joy to watch as well. Like I, I say this is an ear test thing, and you've gotten the chance to hear it. I say he and Felix Ogier Aliasim, and this is a little thing where you got to go watch them in person. I swear the ball coming off of their forehand wing, it sounds different than any other shot I've ever heard. And, you know, I've seen a Federer practice session, even a Rayonich practice session, but these guys just, the racket speed, the torque they can produce, it's different. It is amazing. It is really impressive. Um, and seeing both those guys on the court with practice when I was coaching Jared Donaldson, uh, I saw a lot of those two guys on the tour. We did a lot of practices actually with Rublev. I was like, God, this guy's, he's, he's going to be great, you know, and, and uh, you know, unfortunately Jared got hurt. He was really on the same path as, 
as the Shapos and, and, you know, Rublevs of the world at the time. And, and, you know, he got hurt, but I, you know, I saw all these guys, Ned the we did, we did that first of the, the final, um, the next gen tournament. Uh, I was there at the first one of those and all those guys, I think it's so cool what the tour is doing with that next gen event. It gives them, you know, just a little more confidence and it's, and it's earned because they've played well and they deserve to be in that event. And it, all of them have come up. Like every one of them, Tissipas was there. The first one, he Tissipas was the alternate. Yeah, exactly. At the first one. No, I mean, Chung, there was know? a streak going. Hyun Chung went champion semifinals. Tsitsipas went exactly. champion semifinals. I completely agree with you. You can just see the confidence it gives them, right? The boost they have. And, you know, just having those peers to compete against, to be able to measure yourself against them. I swear this year's winner would have been Davidovich Fokina. He would have gone in there and been like, no, no, no. I am. And I think it would have been a him versus Sinner final. Those are two of the young guys who obviously have looked so good in Sinner. Uh, won it last year he's coming off of the success as well but yeah I mean when you start to look at this next generation of players I mean it feels like this was an inflection point I know Djokovic Nadal ended up winning Grand Slam titles and if Djokovic doesn't you know uh, get withdrawn from the U.S. Open does he win that title if you want to say yes I'm not going to disagree with you but it just feels like week in week out day in day out in the men's game right this already happened in the women's game but in the men's game you know these next generation of players are ready to be just perennial top 10, top 15. We're winning every week. Is that fair? I think what's fun is we're seeing finally some, some of the youth of the sport start to take over and, you know, t- get roots in. You're expecting to see Tsitsipas deep in draws every single time. People forget he's been, he's a pretty young guy, you know, and, and they're all kind of doing it. Um, on their own and and making moves center is ex- extremely exciting Got, glad you brought him up there's so many good young and and actually quite diverse game styles which I like it's yeah I get a little bit bored of uh, you know two of the guys that I admire so much are Novak Djokovic and Andy Murray but I do not want to watch those two guys play a tennis match I, it, it's just <laughs> it's just it's just too too long of a match for me I, okay. I can't do it they're going to defend. They're going to, they're going to tactically, it's going to be all this, this, it's great points, but I can probably take about a set of that. And I kind of like, okay, I've, you know, I've had enough of this. I, I would love to see either one of those guys play any number of different kinds of players because tactically it's more fun to watch. You know, one of them against Fed, one of them against Rafa, one of them against Tissipas, or even a Raonic where it's, you know, you, somebody coming forward, somebody like, you know, that to me is a little bit more fun to watch. Mm-hmm. My only counter to that would be the 2012 Australian Open semifinal Murray versus Djokovic, which came before the 9-7 final Djokovic beats Nadal. The first three sets of that match are the best three sets of tennis I have ever seen. The physicality I mean, of those I, two guys. I, I, watched, I watched that match. I agree with you. It was top tennis. And so, fair enough. So maybe that, you know, that match you watch and you're like, No, wow, but, but set four, you're just like, I've seen it. You're like, we can get to the fifth set now. <laughs> no, so I completely agree with like, you. Let's just let's yeah. fast forward it and and get to the very end and see where, you know, emotionally where, where, where that comes into play a little bit more. And that's fun for me. You know, I like seeing those kind of pressure points and see where, where that goes. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree with you. And just sticking with this again, the, the, where, where the game is at now, maybe compared to where it was when you were playing. And by the way, for you, if I lost a 1992 boys, 16 first round match at Kalamazoo to Paul Goldstein, and I was working with a really good player, I would never allow that player to then go to Stanford. I'd be like, I'm sorry, son, but we don't trust Goldstein. <laughs> like, you just, I can't allow that at all. But, you know, uh, Goldstein, Goldstein beat me in the first round of his run that he won three in a row yeah. and then beat me in the finals three years later. <laughs> yeah. So I, start, I started and ended his run. So I like, I like Paul quite a bit, though. I think he's, he's, he's going to be a good coach for Tristan there. Yeah, if you're going to be a part of the run, you'd like to be there at the start and the finish. So I think that's a, that's a pretty good way to be. But, um, you know, you guys, you look at the game now, and, you know, again, you've talked about it. Fitness is something that is always important to you, and I think people who followed your career knew that. But compared to, I mean, you were talking to the other guys. You were seeing what they were doing. How much more importance is placed now on fitness, on nutrition, which obviously we've learned so much more about nutrition over the past 20 years, but how much more do you see importance placed on that now from players than maybe when you were coming up and going through your pro career? Well, I think that first of all, we just didn't even talk about nutrition. Mm-hmm. That wasn't even a thing, at least for me, you know, kid from the you know we lived on a ranch you know i'm a cowboy family you know that we didn't uh that wasn't uh tennis it wasn't really the thing we 
we loved tennis and, and kind of figured out a way to, to make it work. And, and I, I'm very competitive for me. I liked competing more than I loved the sport. Actually, I loved competing. And, and my vehicle for that was, was tennis. And, and of course I wanted to be the best I could be. Um, but the nutrition was just, wasn't there. My, my dad was a football player and a wrestler. So the, the work off the court, all the fitness stuff, that was 100% something that I was doing since I was a kid, you know, 11, 12 years old, I was doing thousand sit-ups a day. It was like, you know, that was just kind of built into me. I wanted to do it. I liked to do it. I would go do it on my own, you know, get on that jump rope and jump rope twice a day for 10 minutes. Let's get that footwork kind of built into your system. So those, those things are, are quite similar. I think that what, what we're seeing though is the stuff that I thought I did more than other people is now kind of more the norm for everyone. Now everyone is doing the fitness that I thought I was a little bit ahead of the curve of some guys. I was able to generate a lot of pace with good footwork, at least on hard courts that threw a lot of guys games off and they had to figure out a way to play against me because I was hitting the ball harder than anybody on tour at one point, you know? So it's like, you got to figure out how to play against that. And my goal is to be able to do that for a long time. I struggled sometimes in the five setters. So it's like, that's where fitness really could have come in, not fitness, but uh, maybe, maybe a different kind of fitness. You know, now that I do CrossFit, I see all these different things that can keep you going a little bit longer. Um, you know, more of like the hit type of training where you're constantly keeping your heart rate up and those kinds of things with lighter weight that actually equates quite well to tennis. Cause it's like play a point, how do I get my breath back? How do I play another point that same way? How can I make that work for longer? That kind of knowledge would have been huge for my game. I think, um, and then maybe eating the right things would have been even better. So also, what do you eat on the court? One of the battles with Jared Donaldson that we had, my, our, our team had with, is what he would eat in the court. He didn't like a lot of things. He would get bored of things like, Jared, you've got to eat this stuff every single one of your changeovers. He's a thin guy. His energy level would trail off a little bit and he didn't realize it. But if, and that would actually happen to me. So it's like, I don't realize I'm hitting the ball, you know, five, 10 miles an hour less well, that's why it's coming back all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's in, and so it's, how do I maintain that? How do I keep that for longer is the big trick. All these players, they're doing it. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree with you. Let me just say those habits you built up since you were 10, 11 years old, it, it worked, uh, whatever they were, it clearly, <laughs> it clearly worked. So bravo to you, but you know, yeah, you. It, I'm, uh, to use Jared as an example to stick with this because next gen is my specialty. As you can see, I go with what I know as a fellow next gen, I like yep. to ride with this generation and you know, you could see for him, right. It was the legs would get a little bit weak and the first serve starts going right. in the net and the first serve was always something for him that was circled. And so you talk about, it's so funny, things as small as just eating on court. I feel like those are the little things that begin to add up. And so I guess, you know, again, the fitness perspective, and you kind of talked about this with the next gen, it feels like longevity, that seems kind of obvious, but longevity and flexibility, obviously, along with speed, that's the name of the game nowadays. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, I started doing yoga later, I started doing yoga when I was when I was injured, it's like, oh, maybe I should add some flexibility. And I should have been doing it when I was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. You should have been doing it when I was even younger than that to try to get that built in a little bit more flexibility. So you have less injuries, you know, and I had injuries over my career. Everybody's got little, little things. And, and later they, they ended my career because I just, you know, I, I think that there's preventative measures I could have taken possibly. I, I know now with, with players, you know, great that, that the money has, has increased so much that you can afford to have a physio and some of the guys, even, you know, a trainer and a physio. Um, but having some, somebody there that's stretching you out, that's making sure that all these things are happening, you know, when you're, when you're tired, when you just want to go back and to your hotel and, and chill out and play some video games or whatever, you, you're, you're doing your due diligence every single day. Um, and these teams that players have, that's why we're seeing players play into their 40s. They're playing, you know, at 35 years old, playing just as good at tennis as they were when they're 25. And, you know, 30s now middle age for a tennis player where 30 for, I was like, wow, you know, that's kind of the end. Um, and, and now it's changed a lot. And I think all that knowledge is, is, is obviously uh, a big part of it. 
Mm-hmm. I will also just a little tidbit for all of you listeners at home who go and play casually at the park and, you know, just a little story <laughs> for you. I'm, I'm going to go with JMG because if you've got a three letter name, you can rock, you do it. So, you know, JMG, a story for you. Uh, we are at the park. I'm hitting with my little brother. And, you know, uh, in the tennis community, am I, was I ever going to go pro? Absolutely not. Could I have played college tennis? Absolutely. And so I am better than your normal tennis player, but you go out, if you go out on the court and the first thing you do when you get there is w- run a couple of warm up laps around the court just to get loose everyone's eyes will turn to you they'll be like oh my god this guy must be a freaking professional and it's like no I just I need to get loose nowadays it's not what it once was and so it's just a little you know a little tidbit for our listeners at home that's always a trick to make yourself feel better than you actually are but you know speaking of the habits you built up uh, when you were younger this is a perfect transition to get into how did you know how does JMG get into the game of tennis how does you know this become something that obviously you've committed your life to What's funny, um, you know, I, again, my dad was a wrestler and a football player. So uh, athletics are in the family. My mom played a lot of baseball. She was a pitcher. So two athletic parents, you know, the the first time I could, I I don't remember never, ever not being able to hit a ball over the net so I could just do it. So my dad was a stockbroker and he used to take me to the tennis courts with him. So he would get off at one, you know, in, in uh, Washington state, the market's closed by one o'clock. So he would, he would go to the, go to the courts he loved playing. He thought tennis was a pretty easy sport compared to the sports that he played. Mm-hmm. He found out that he was wrong, but that's what he thought. So he, he used to play a lot of tennis. Got to be a decent player, about a 5-0 player, if, if you remember the old, those kinds of old of ratings, 5-0, 5-5. Yeah. Um, I don't know what his UTR would have been. No, no uh, I was going to say, but, that's uh, right in my range. I feel like <laughs> that means he probably could have played some pretty good college tennis, but he didn't. Exactly. So he yeah. played, he played some college players, played some tournaments, played a lot of open events. And, you know, that's, that's kind of where his range was. I wanted to play. I wanted to get on the court and, and he's like, Hey, you can actually hit the ball pretty good, you know, pretty well. And, and so that's sort of how I started. Um, my hero was Jimmy Connors. I, I love Jimmy Connors. I loved his feistiness. I loved how he competed on every single point. And it was just, it was just so easy to want to be like that guy. Um, you know, I loved the, the magic of McEnroe as well. And, you know, some of the greats, that, you know, of our game, um, the Everts and Navratilovas inspired me as well. But, you know, I, I loved Jimmy. And, and so, you know, my, I played tennis because of Jimmy Connors, his intensity, the way he played, the way he moved, uh, it just inspired me and uh, kept me wanting to play. And then when I got into my first tournament when I was nine, I lost in the finals and it was tragic and I cried my <laughs> eyes out. And I wanted to be back on the court that same day. So I realized, you know, it's like, this, this seems like a thing I probably should try and do for the rest of my life. Yeah, no, I remember Michael Dubay first lost four and two. And by the way, that's better in that first match than I would have done eight years later when we were both 16, 17 years old. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, those sorts of things are the things you remember. And obviously when you're good at tennis, there's a lot of traveling that comes along with it. And it comes at the, you know, with sacrifice of maybe having, instead of school friends, you have the friends you see at tournaments. And so for you, I'm curious, when you look back at that part of your life, were you doing a lot of traveling and then, you know, ultimately how did that influence you think your childhood just your relationship with the game um the one lucky thing for me is that we stayed we stayed in public schools i stayed in high i went to school all the way through through a senior in high school um we had to make different kinds of agreements with the teachers and with the schools and and plead for them to uh work with us uh, we, i did out of class studies and a lot of things which meant i could i could take my stuff on the road or i could be in class um like the rest of the kids um, so for me, I was lucky enough to have a lot of friends in school and a lot of, we lived in a neighborhood at first and before we moved to the, to the ranch in the country. So I had a lot of good close friends that I, I kept in touch with and I saw all the time and they were behind my tennis. And that, that was, I think that was really good for me to have a pretty normal, um, childhood in that respect. We did travel a lot. We had to drive Spokane, Washington and certainly not known for its tennis. There's like a couple of tournaments that are not very good. So we had to go to Seattle, Vancouver, Portland a lot for the Pacific Pacific Northwest type stuff and then travel for nationals. All of a sudden I'm traveling across the country, wherever the national tournaments would be um, and some international stuff. Um, For me, my eyes weren't necessarily on the junior slams as much as, as they're as important as they are nowadays. Um, It was on Kalamazoo. It was on what's my path. It was always, what's my path to get to the pro level, you know? So how high up can I play in the age groups? Is that 12 year old? Can I play 16 years? (laughs) 
to 16s, you know, the sections wouldn't necessarily let you. So I had to prove that I could win at a certain level before they would let me play up and play the better, the, just the older kids. That, that was kind of our answer to, to a lot of the, the questions like, how do, I, how do you get better? It's to, it's to go get beat by players and, and figure out how to beat those players, right? That's in the end pretty much it. And do the work off the court, go compete figure out how to beat the bigger boys on, on, you know, out there in the tournaments. And uh, so that's what we did. But I think that uh, as far as you know, childhood is pretty normal. We mm-hmm. l- was lucky to live in a, in a good, good space and we had horses and a lot of animals and it was a great place uh, to grow up. Yeah. Well, I speaking for those who have come out of Washington, some name drops here, Henrik Wearsholm, Mitchell Stewart. They're like, Hey, there's some talent in Washington. They're like, we're pretty good. You didn't have to <laughs> abandon us, but uh, no, I mean, it also helps, right. When you go to your public high school teacher and you're like, yeah, I made the final of Kalamazoo. And so I'm going to get a wild card into the junior U S open. Do you care if I skip geometry? And they're like, yeah, that's cool. You can, yeah, that's fine. You go do your thing. I did have to educate a lot of the people about what these things were though. They're like, Oh, good <laughs> yeah. job. You did good good nationals. You know, it's like, it took a little while for people to kind of grasp what I was trying to do and, 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 and be a part of, uh, you know, with, with my tennis career. And, you know, we're a football school. We were, you know, you know, mash, you know, potatoes and, and steak kind of, kind of, kind of place, you know, and, and, uh, you know, pretty simple people that, that, you know, a lot of people grow up and stay there and in, in, in Spokane, it's a great place for, for that, for family but not a lot of, you know, they didn't really know what that was. Now I think it's a little bit different, obviously with things like tennis channel, it's a lot more people can mm-hmm. kind of realize that there's, boy, it's hard to get, to get to be a top player. And, and, and the path that everybody takes is a little bit different. Yeah. But I can see the yearbook article. And as someone, you know, a former sports editor for a high school newspaper, Jean-Michael gambles <laughs> with his future. And it's just like talking about you pursuing your, you know, I'm sure you've seen that headline. Oh, so many times. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, again, you're having success at all these different junior events. You're making the finals back to back at Kalamazoo, which, you know, obviously I can only imagine what that experience is like, but at one point, at what point do you think to yourself, you know what, maybe I don't need to go to college. Maybe I can just go directly to the pros. Well, that was a tough decision. I, I signed a letter of intent with University of Washington with Matt Anger there, who I thought was a good coach, and I still think he's a good coach. Um, he's done a great job at that school. Um, and I, I sort of panicked a little bit because college tennis back then, it was good, but it was nowhere near what it is nowadays, where you have an actual, actual two paths people can take. I actually believe you can go to college and get way better and then come to the tour you can also go on the tour. I felt like for me in the development that I had already done, wasn't going to improve that much. I was going to come in at least on paper as, as one of the top five in the nation as a freshman. I don't think that that's, you know, I was number one in the nation as a first year 18s. You know, it's like, well, where can I, where can I improve myself? And if I do go to college, you know, I was a little scared First of all, I was a little bit of a mama's boy, so I was a little bit afraid to leave home. Um, I was comfortable traveling with my family, and that's what I what I knew. Um, small town, even smaller town on the on the ranch in Colbert, Washington, where I lived, it was kind of like, oh wow, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave, even go into Seattle, and and I wasn't really ready for that. I also wasn't ready to give up the the idea that that I could be a top pro. Um, some things happened for me that were, were great. Uh, you know, I started to have some pretty good success in some tournaments, some, some satellite events, put some points on the board. You know, I think my ranking was around 500 so between, I can't remember the exact number, but even probably between like 300 something to 500 that second year, 18s, um, which was decent was, was kind of like, if you can get some points, might as well go out and try to play some tournaments. Um, and I also had the chance to start doing some practice in Palm Springs with Courier and a bunch of the players. I mean, getting on the court with Jim Courier was just unbelievable for a young player. Uh, Jose Higueras was there. And a lot of good Americans were practicing there, Richie Renenberg and all these guys that, that I kind of looked up to at the time. And then some, some European players were coming over. Guy Forget was there, you know, good, talented players that I was able to play matches against in, the, in like the – you know, December times with a little bit of an off season for those guys. And I'm looking at them. It's like, Oh, I'm just this futures player, but I'd actually never, it was always kind of stepping stone. Oh, I can beat these guys in sets in practice. I sh- certainly should be trying to play on tour, you know, and uh, that's how we make sort of made that decision is, is let's, let's, let's go for it rather than kind of be the target in, on the college circuit. I'm going to play one or two at, at UW 
for sure, unless I forget how to play tennis at the time, you know, and that, that isn't, wasn't as appealing as, 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 you know, let's go and, and get my butt beat a few times and uh, a lot of times, <laughs> <laughs> but come up with some wins. And, and I was having some wins and let's get out with the best kind of players in the world and the best kind of coaches in the world to try to try to figure out what I need to do better to compete. So that's, that's why we made that decision. Now, counterpoint, 370 wins in your pro career. I think you did all right. I think you made the right choice. Okay, so of course I have many questions about your pro career, but in order to sift through them all, I'm sure you've relived many of these memories before. We're going to do them in rapid-fire succession. Does that work for you? Oh, wow. All right. Rapid-fire in terms of the questions. Take as long as you'd like with your answers. Again, I'm not doing anything. Oh, fair enough. Okay. Yeah, I'm not doing anything. So please, (laughs) take your time. Um, But all right, first question to you. If you could win that, I think it was the Miami 02 finals. I think I got that right. If you could win that Miami 02 final or one of your Kalamazoo finals, which do you pick? <laughs> the, the Miami final, for sure. <laughs> I think winning a Masters series would be a lot bigger deal than winning Kalamazoo. No, uh, you say that, but you would have <laughs> easy, been a Kalamazoo. Easy answer there. Yeah, okay. See, again, these will be rapid fire succession. All right. If you could, I'll take uh, no way. Yeah, if you could replay any one match in your career, which would it be? Can be a win, I can be probably... a loss. <sighs> Well, do I get to replay it and win it? Yeah, you get to win it. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I think uh, playing against Sampras at uh, you know, this, the quarterfinals Wimbledon, you know, if I could have turned that around. A couple matches in my career would have made a huge big difference. It would have been a, you know, closer to the top 10 or in the top 10 with a couple different kind of wins there. Mm-hmm. Playing Pete at Wimbledon, that has to be special. It was special. It was, it was a, it was a great match. I think we played there and, you know, he just had a, had a figured me out there and I'd beaten him in Scottsdale before that. So I felt like I was fairly confident going into the match, obviously, even on the grass. Uh, I knew I could return his serve and put some pressure on him, but God, the guy had just kept coming up with unbelievable second serves when he needed them and uh, changed the thing about Pete. That's so interesting that people don't know. They think about pistol Pete, think about his great serve, all these things, which are true. But he was also tactically very intelligent, too. When to come to the net, when to change up the way he was actually playing. He would take big cuts at returns for a while, didn't care if he broke. And then in the latter part of sets, when it was a little bit tight, he would block balls back, make sure that he was playing longer points, try a little bit harder from the baseline, and he would really throw players off. That's what he did to me at Wimbledon. It was, it was a really good strategy for him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're on video. So when I do this impression of his forehand there, you see it. But <laughs> I want, yeah, exactly. But yeah, the little loop, the elbows above I the head, it. whatever's happening. But he, he wanted to bait opponents into trying to get him to hit the on the run forehand, right? I feel like his on the run forehand, one of his most underrated aspects of his game. Oh, that forehand out of the corner was brilliant. And, and actually, a shot, you know, I actually used to watch Pete all the time because my serve is sort of designed after Pete's a little bit later. I, I was like, how can I make my serve better? Well, let's go watch the best server, in my opinion, still of all time and, and try to see some things that, that I can learn there. And, and that big hip torque, his corkscrew motion up over the ball and how he's able to generate such good ball spin on that, on that serve um, and keep it flat if he wanted to was, was the brilliance of that motion. And you really couldn't see where he's going to hit it. He could hit it in all the spots just as easily. Um, but that forehand also, it wasn't designed to sustain long points. It was designed to offensively out of the corner, get back in the point or surprise his opponents. And often he would get a shorter ball and be, then be all over the net and hurt you at the, at the net. And he was so good with, with the, the volleys. Um, so I tried really hard to design a similar forehand, obviously with the two-handed forehand, not great out of the corner, not a good plan. So I, I worked really hard on a one-hander. And what I did was like, how can I get back on offense? Uh, yeah, I'll play a long point if I have to. I don't want to. I'll play a long point if it's, if it's in my favor to stay in a cross-court rally before I can you know, get the one up the line. Those kinds of rallies are fine. But I didn't want to be running side to side all day. That wasn't the plan. So if I could get back on offense um, as quickly as possible, that's what, we, that's what we were looking for. And that Pete forehand was, was the ticket. And it, it won me a lot of matches where I would surprise guys out of the corner, hit a huge shot, and then get a short ball to just crush. 
Mm-hmm. No, you talk about the two-handed forehand. That's where I want to go next. How many, you know, people say it all the time with Stevie Johnson. They're like, if he could just hit the two-handed backhand more frequently, if he could hit through it, it would be better. And, you know, you talk to him and he's like, do you think I don't know that? Like, do you think I'm not in practice every day working on this exact thing? And so for you, it's just, you know, I'm sure it was the same deal as why doesn't he go to the one-hander or have, you know, why does he play with more variety, all of these different things, you know, how frequently did you hear that? And, you know, I'm sure there were days when you're like, and I'm going to swear for the first time, you're just like, this. I'm, I'm switching the forehand. <laughs> but, you know, how frequently was that something you were working on? Well, first of all, uh, I'm pretty hard-headed, which I think is, <laughs> can, be, can be a blessing if, if, it's, if it's done right. Hard-headed, you know, work hard, do all these things that it would take to, to be a good player, but also hard-headed sometimes in changing things it's like, well, it's working. I can bully guys off the court with that two-handed forehand. I can hit it harder than anybody's hitting the ball, except for maybe that big Pete forehand, a few, a few shots. But that's that sustained firepower. I, I was pretty good at it for you know with that two-hander. Um, so people would say to me, you know, people with a lot more tennis knowledge than than my family had certainly uh, would say, oh, that's probably not going to work for you on tour, you know. At the time, some of the USTA players, not Nick Saviano. Nick Saviano thought I could was and a guy that I worked with throughout my career, um, who I have a lot of respect for. He said, "You could do it, but you're going to have to be a lot faster. You're going to have to have perfect footwork to use that two-hander on tour." Other play- people would say, "That's nah, you're not going to be a top player with with that shot." You know, looking back, I might have been a, a better player in the end with a one-handed forehand, and I would it would have given me a little bit more ability to move around the court better my backhand I would put up against anybody's backhand pretty much ever I think my two-handed backhand was as good as 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 a shot could really get my limitations were on this other side Um, and you know if I was designing my my game again as from a junior perspective I probably would have dropped the two-hander at some point now it helped me because I was a skinny kid tall pretty tall and skinny you know couldn't generate power with the one-hander. So it's like, well, how do I win matches? And it's, it's, it's a tricky thing because you don't want to be too good in the juniors too early. That's not usually a good thing. You don't want to be too good in the 12s and 14s. It's, it's, it's a false, you know, a false, uh, you know, bravado there and, and, and gives some kids too much confidence too early. You want to lose some matches. You want to be kind of in the mix winning some matches, but you don't want to be too good. And so it's, it's tricky. So it's like at that point, maybe drop it, maybe a, it's hard to learn a new forehand though. It's like, when do you do that? When do you actually make that change? Um, you know, Pete famously switched to a one-handed backhand and then didn't have that great of a junior career. And then look what happened later, you know? So it's, it's tricky. You still got to win a little bit though. You got to keep that there. You want to get beat down too much. So I don't know. You know, I think that the work we did on the one-hander that I did, did possess was pretty good. I was good moving this way. I wasn't so good moving this way. If I had to try to hit it inside out, it was a struggle. So I couldn't fully switch to the one-hander. I did try. I did play two matches with a full one-handed forehand at Delray Beach, and I won a match. <laughs> mm-hmm. I won my first round there that, that year and, and uh, the year that I tried it. And then after that, I was like, I lost my second round against a guy that I didn't think I should lose to. I forget who I lost to that match, but I said, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> <Done with that. laughs> no, uh, but you know, sense. it's, it's hindsight's always 2020 or, or even better, you know? And uh, it's, it's tough to say that, you know, maybe I would have been worse. It's, it's, it's tricky. No, now I see though where the Murray Djokovic, I don't want to say resentment because that's not true, but I see why they sparked your flames because those are two of the other two best backhands of all time. And you're like, guys, get out. This is my territory. I have the best backhand. Oh, no, I think that, uh, but (laughs) those two guys, I would have loved to play against those two guys. I I would not be afraid of their backhand in the slightest bit, but they would have both moved me into that forehand corner. And that's where the trouble would have come into play. It's they're so good tactically, uh, two of the best tacticians the sport's ever, ever going to see. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that, that's one of the, another great tactician though, he hit the ball a little different was Andre. I had so much trouble with Andre because he would take me into the short, he would hit the angles. He'd move me up into the, into the forehand corner. I'd win some of those points, but I, I, over the course of the match, I struggled hitting that forehand out of the corner well enough against the guy that could then move in on the baseline and move me back into the backhand. Mm-hmm. So I defended that really well. And if you stayed in the backhand rally with me, I was probably going to get ahead of it. But if you could move me over here first and then back there, then it, I would struggle and, and, and then back into the forehand corner. That's, that's, that was a tricky proposition for me to be facing. So those guys like 
those two guys that you named, I have nothing but admiration for them both, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but I, it, I would have, I would have struggled to play against them. I think it would have been tough for me if I couldn't hit through them. Yeah. Now I, I expect to see one storyline coming out of this podcast. John Michael Gamble hates Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic as you know, he says officially <laughs> hates them. No, that could not be further. No, from I the love truth. Yeah. That's not the truth at all. Exactly. But so you talk about Andre Agassi. He's the person you played the most in your careers, 13 times. Now you did get two wins over him. So you, you know, it's not one of those. I played him 18 times and lost all 18, but <laughs> you know, in that generation of players, I know Agassi is a little bit older than you, but you know, it's uh, guys like him, guys like uh, even a Chris Woodruff who now of course is at Tennessee or just you know the Bryan brothers I think were a little bit younger than you but all of these different players coming up with this group who have uh, all this success on the pro tour as well how helpful was that for you and getting the chance to be around Jared Donaldson you know there's a group right now 96 97 98 Americans do you feel that same sort of energy around them as you did with maybe your own cohort well, I think that uh, the interesting thing is that those guys are really kind of a tight knit little, you know, Tommy Paul and Riley Opelka. These guys are all really good friends. And it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of cool. They're actually, they're hanging out off the court, on the court, and they're playing each other and they're all getting better together, which I think is the best thing in the world. I, I sort of played with the older guys. Um, I was lucky to get on the court and, and, and have a lot of practices. Andre and I were friends. We had a lot of practices together. I mean, what I look back at sort of some of the blessings that I had is, I was practicing all the time with the best players in the world. I was on court with Pete. I was on court with Jim. I was on court with Andre. These are the guys I've practiced with before tournaments. And that's looking back. It's like, wow, you know, trying to get like Jared better and better practices, get on court with, you know, these guys, you know, I used to practice a lot with fed. It's like, you know, I didn't even think about it. It's just like, Oh, who have we got today? And it was always kind of this amazing uh, amount of talent that I was able to go up against in practices. And Marat Safin used to, we used to go battle. We didn't play on tour. I don't think we played in an exhibition, but I, you know, um, these great practices against these players that, you know, they were sort of my, uh, Safin was the same age as, similar age as me. Um, but I was on court with those guys. And uh, the Bryan twins were my close friends on tour, still very good friends with Bob and Mike. And uh, it was, it was awesome to, to kind of all of us kind of get better and do well together. Um, to see them kind of rise through their career. And we, we used to practice a lot as well. And so they were my kind of closest friends there. Um, and, and then Taylor Dent, who I used to practice with a lot and, and had a very tough game to play against, um, was, was also a good friend of mine. But I see, you know, see then the guys coming up, it was Marty Fish and James Blake. And mm-hmm. we had some fantastic, you know, players who were a little bit younger than me um, and sort of pushed me to continue to try to play well. Yeah, no, I feel like, you know, getting back to the conversation we had earlier, people would be like, when trying to identify tennis players, they'd be like, tennis player, tennis player, tennis player, that one's Taylor Dent, that one's Mark Philippoussis. And they'd been like, yeah, those are the only two recognizable people. They, they stand out from the crowd. But yeah, obviously, again, uh, it's a really fun era of tennis. And, you know, in that time, we saw, obviously, Agassi was winning titles. We saw uh, Gustavo Querton break through and win a couple. We saw Ivan Isevich mm-hmm. win one, Juan Carlos Ferrero win one. Uh, that was probably the last time obviously the big three big four era has been 15 years now but that was the last time when you saw multiple guys you know coming into grand slams and just winning titles and for you you were someone who was very much in the peripheral of the conversation you know quarterfinalist at a grand slam you get to that stage obviously you're doing something right does it build did it build confidence for you during your career to see your contemporaries go have success at the slam level and do you think that's what's going to happen now now that we see you know a dominic team breakthrough now that we see a team zero final do you think there will be a sort of trickle down confidence from there yeah, I think that that's exactly what happens. You know, I, I, you bring up Andre and my matches against Andre, you know, I, I had those couple of wins, but they were sort of earlier. Uh, I struggled with him later and, and he was kind of always in the way, but the, the way that it kind of built up, I played Andre t- twice. I think that I, I qualified and made it to the quarterfinals of two different tournaments. One was in Scottsdale, made the quarters there. I made the quarters in San Jose, lost to Andre twice. And then I played Andre in the quarters of Indian Wells. And after I'd had amazing wins against Philippoussis and Courier and, and I beat him and it was like, Oh wow, I belong here. Um, you know, if, and if I can have wins against these guys who are winning tournaments, I certainly feel like I can, I can do the same thing or at least push far. 
you know, I played well on the hard courts, often having good results and, you know, pushing into the draws pretty well in, in the hard court events and, and, and the grass. Um, but, you know, I think that it is, it is exactly like that. It's like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. You know, seeing Dominic team, whether he would have won or not with, with Novak, you know, in the event uh, without the unfortunate thing that happened, it, it, it doesn't matter because it, it, you know, he did win. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's great to see him get through. Zvera is knocking on the door. He's going to continue to knock on the door. Look how well he's playing in the fall. Um, you know, just playing unbelievable tennis still. So I think that, that that little group is going to be keep keep knocking on the door. Whether anybody can ever beat Nadal at the French is going to be in question. <laughs> he might be yeah. doing that till he's like 50. But um, the rest of the events, I think, are going to start to be up for grabs. And I think that makes it really interesting and fun. Yeah, there's a fun fake bet out there. Who diminishes first, Tom Brady or Rafa Nadal on clay? And it's like, I don't know. It's it's going to be a fun question down the home stretch. But all right, uh, obviously, there's so many more questions I could ask you. Last thing I want to do with you, I'm going to ask you to put on your coaching hat because, as you mentioned, you work with Tristan Boyer. You've worked with Jared Donaldson, many others as well. I want to go through these next-gen men because, uh, you know, this is a topic we talk about a lot here at Crack Rackets. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name the player. These are all guys I think have legitimate grand and slam winning potential upside. I want you to name the one thing you think they need to work on to get to that next level. Maybe it's not one thing, but just, you know, your initial reaction when you think of these players, what they need to work on. Sound good with you? Sounds great. All right, here we go. Let's start at the top. You mentioned him, Alex Zverev. What's the thing he needs to do to become a Grand Slam champion? Well, I think Zverev is, is a pretty easy one there. What we saw in the U.S. Open final, hitting his forehand bigger than he's ever hit it against against team there, especially the first couple of sets. Got a little tighter when it got tight. When he had the chance to serve it out, didn't land those big forehands that got him in the position to do it. So he's so good defensively. He moves mm-hmm. unbelievably well. Such a good athlete. He's got a great first serve. People are going to nitpick at the second serve. Obviously, he, he should learn a kick serve. I, I don't know why he doesn't want to kick it. Some, he just doesn't want to do it. I'm, I'm sure he could figure it out. So <laughs> kick the serve so you have a little bit more dependable second serve and hit the forehand a little bit bigger, and he's, he's going to win a slam. I say it every time. Yeah, I say there are 10 minutes in every match where Alex Vierov looks like the best tennis player ever to exist, where you're just like, <laughs> how do you move like that at that size? How can yeah, you it's amazing. He has, he has all the tools. You just, you just get a little bit out of your safe zone where you can win all these matches against all these players but maybe not the best players, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe it's not enough. So you hit the forehand a little bit bigger. The backhand's already fantastic. You can do anything different. (laughs) A few less double faults on big points. So, Mm -hmm. so kick it, stop slicing (laughs) it all the time. And, and, and there you go. I mean, he, it's like two things. Uh, One of them is already there. He can hit the forehand bigger. He's got to do it. Yeah, I agree with you there. All right. Medvedev. He obviously is the other finalist in this group thus far. What would you like to see from him? I mean, Medvedev for him, it's got such a, his game is, is so tricky. The way he hits the ball, it's you can't really change anything on the ground strokes. They're amazing. Uh, consistency. Consistency is, is something that is, is an issue. So just being patient, but he, he is patient in some of the matches. So, you know, just kind of executing on those groundies. When, when did he take the ball up the line is the question. Stay in some of the rallies a little bit longer, I guess. Mm-hmm. Serves already pretty good. Uh, for Medvedev, he's, he needs to control himself a little bit. It gets to be sometimes his own worst enemy you know, a, a lot out there. Um, if he can just get the focus there, I, I don't know if there really anything needs to be changed in his game. He can kind of do it all. And mm-hmm. he's such an interesting and tough player to play against. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with you. He's the, you know, the mystery piece, right? Cause there's just so many different things he can do on a court. And you're just like some days he, you remember, Oh yeah, he's six, six and not an indoor hard court. If you're six, six, you win the match. And so I completely agree with you there. All right. Tsitsipas, what do you want to see from him? Well, Tsitsipas is just, it's just, I think he's got the, all of it. He's it's got the game time. to do it. His, it's, just his, it's just time. There's mm-hmm. really nothing. I, I almost think that he had such good results early that he got a little overconfident in the matches and put a little bit too much pressure on himself. If he can stay with that kind of – he reminds me a lot of the way that I played tennis. Not, not, not the game style, but the intensity level is, is very similar to, to myself. So I understand his, how his brain kind of works it's it's like it's like getting yourself to that point where you can continue it but you can't spike too high and be too intense and then lose your focus and then it like drops right it's like so how do i get it up here and keep it here or at least sort of waver a bit for longer um Mm -hmm. the guy's fit he moves well got a huge forehand he's got a great backhand come over it maybe a little bit more 
Mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. at times it's like nitpicking it a little bit. I mean, he's, he can already do it all. So it's, for me, it's just getting more and maybe try to put a little bit less pressure on himself is really the, I mean, if I was coaching him, it's like, you know, just try to take yourself a little bit out of the moment and play with that intensity, but not too much. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, speaking of intensity, next guy who I think has to be in this conversation, Andre Rublev, who, in my opinion, player of the year in 2020. But uh, here's a little thing. And because again, how do you nitpick what he's doing? The guy it, for a while it was, I don't know if he's going to be fit enough. Okay. Now he is fast enough. I don't know if the volleys are there. The first volleys are getting better. I think one thing that would be just so great for his game, and you see him do it more and more, when he hits a kick serve, he's just going to get a first forehand. Like, it's just a guarantee. Kick serve, he can run around it, doesn't matter. It's a first forehand, and now you're on his terms. Uh, For me, it's the serve. The serve's got to get a little bit better. What do you think? Well, I think watching the U.S. Open, he got a lot of aces in his matches. I actually called a couple of his matches uh, um, for the world feed there and was so impressed with how well he served. I thought that actually that was something that needed to be improved. Mm-hmm. I, I think your point of, of the kick serve, maybe sp- like, you know, changing it up from time to yeah, time pace, would be, yeah. would be a, a good, a good play to kind of like, okay, Rublev is, is, is actually closer to, to my type of game. It's a little more topspin than, than I did, but it, it, you know what you're going to get, right? If you're mm-hmm. going to be on the court with gamble, you know what you're going to get. I'm going <laughs> to be taking it to my opponent pretty much i might come to that a little bit i'm going to try to serve big and i'm going to crush returns all day against you so you better serve well <laughs> that is really if you that that's ruble right there it's a little more spin again but it's you know what you're going to get so if you can add a little bit of you know diversity to the game maybe even slice a few more balls got to be careful though you don't want to take away that big offense that he plays so well so for me him he's been injured so staying injury free is is a big thing for for Rublev. You know, continue to put a little bit of muscle on that frame so he can get even better at the things that he does so well. Um, we're, we're talking about guys that they're, they're knocking at the door right now. No, I absolutely agree. Well, then I'm going to give you last two. FAA and Sinner, they're a little bit younger, right? 20, 19 years old. What are the things you want to see from those two young two? Because obviously, you know, the, there's a big fuss. FAA is 0-5 or 0-6 or something in ATP finals, but he's made six by the age of 20. And obviously what the Sin man yes. is doing speaks for itself. What do you want to see from those two to get them to, you know, that upper echelon? Well, FAA, it's... I, I always talk more about the fact that he's that he's made those finals already than the yeah. fact that he, that he didn't win them. It's like, who cares? You know, <laughs> yeah. like he's he's putting he's putting the work in. He's going deep in these tournaments. Um, for him, it's consistency. He he sometimes gets very erratic in, in his matches and loses sort of focus during points, during the longer points. Misses a ball, misses a ball here. All of a sudden, finds himself at fifteen forty on his serve. Um, you see him double faulting from time to time matches. So kind of shoring that up. I think that's just something that he'll get better at from playing. All that stuff looks really quite good. Um, he's got all the tools, comes forward well, moves extremely well. Um, for, for him, so many people talking about how well he plays, including us at Tennis Channel often because we love watching him play. Um, shrug that off. Try to block that out and just and stay focused on on all the things that he's doing so well. I think he takes his fitness very seriously. He's a very, I love how he approaches the sport. He always is uh, very professional with what the way that he approaches his tennis. Um, I, I think that I think that we're going to see obviously so many good things from him. But he's he's got the game. It's just kind of refining that for for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like, to- as you say, for Sinner to, to just switch gears, because I completely agree with everything you said there. For Sinner, and I think you see it in FAA too, there's this look in their eyes. And I think Yannick Sinner has it particular, and correct me if I'm wrong, where he just like, it's a first round of a 250 event. I think he was playing... I, it, it wasn't Crano Busta. It was, uh, maybe it was Simone. Maybe it was some, I think it was Simone. And there's just this look in his face. He's like, you don't belong on the court with me. Like I should be in the semifinals. Now I am in the finals. <laughs> I deserve it. And he just, there's something about him. I don't know. There's just this, I, I guess it's like, he just seems like he's going to be match tough. He just seems like the moment is built for him. Yeah. It's funny. I actually called that match. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, he, you know what I like about, about that, and I think you brought up is, is his competitive nature. I like the fact that he's so kind of comfortable in his own skin mm-hmm. on the court. You don't see him looking around, looking for help from his box necessarily. He goes and he plays tennis. Mm-hmm. And I actually equate that to his, to his skiing, where mm-hmm. if you're going fast down a, down a mountain, there's, <laughs> there ain't nobody going to help you, <laughs> by the way, yeah. uh, coming, you know, in, in your, to, to, to be able to ski better. You, know, you, you have to go and speed down the hill, the end. 
So I, I think he, that actually helped him to, that he did that um, and did that so well with his tennis. Cause he's, he's very kind of just in the moment and, and you're right. He's pretty ferocious with the way that he, his, his look on his face. I, I quite like it. Mm-hmm. No, I, a lot of, again, all of these guys, it's going to be such an exciting five, 10 years in the men's professional game. Well, then my last question for you, the most important thing I will ask you, and I'm asking this on request from one of my sources, uh, you know, it's you, Steve Prakash, you're in the workout room. Inevitably, <laughs> one of you flashes your abs in the mirror. Who's got the best abs at Tennis Channel? um I, I you know what i think that probably would be up to to the viewers i i, I think <laughs> I, i'm pre- i'm pretty fit right now i think that i would put myself up against them i know that prakash was on a bulk so he probably wouldn't say himself right this second i know he's mm-hmm. he looks like he's leaning out a little bit but he was putting on some muscle impressively so mm-hmm. yeah so he I looked a little know. skinny he needs to put on more muscle yeah come on what's he <laughs> no, doing my yeah. god i don't know it's like i was like Dude, why are you why are you bulking he's like i just he just loves he loves he loves the process and i think that's yeah. so cool I, I, I don't like if I ever lost my abs, I'd be kind of like, Oh no, what am I doing? <laughs> so that's, that's why you don't see me trying to bulk. I think I'm already big enough. Mm-hmm. The correct answer would have been <laughs> Nick Monroe. Uh, but it's a, you know, either way it's a, it's definitely a win. Well, again, John Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Obviously there's always a spot open for you on this podcast whenever you would like to. Well, join. Thank you. You know, again, it's been so fun hearing you on the broadcast. So keep up the phenomenal work. Oh, thank you. I will do my best. Yeah. Take care. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Thanks, Alex. All right. Have a great day. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with John Michael Campbell. A huge thank you to JMG for taking the time to chat. Uh, obviously, uh, when you get to talk to someone with the sort of experience he has throughout the tennis world, it is always a pleasure. So again, hopefully you listeners enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to get him back on the show sometime soon. Of course, there's so much else going on in the tennis world right now. If you have missed out on any of the action, be sure to head to our website, crackrackets.com. We have you set with our offseason and preview of the college tennis world with our college contender series. We're talking a little next gen 2.0 on the mini break podcast every Wednesday. And of course we are doing that as well uh, each and every week on Wednesdays on our website, crackrackets.com. That's David Gertler and myself doing that series. Of course, Judson Wall, Vance Fermani, so many great contributors to our website right now. Be sure to check out all of their work, the work of super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westoff, who by the way, had a fuck of an editing job to do on this one by going to that website crackedrackets.com you go want a more immediate updates twitter instagram facebook youtube we are at cracked rackets you want to follow or message me directly i am at great shot pod uh, again, shout out to our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15. Go to Aerobar.com. Use that promo code CRACK15. But with that in mind, for our wonderful guest, Sean Michael Gamble, our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You've been listening to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.